Welcome to StoryCorps, Share Your Science. I'm Sandy Duick, a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute at NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley, California. Today, I'm catching up with Dr. Sigrid Reinch, who's also at Ames. Welcome, Sigrid. Hi, Sandy. Nice to see you. You too. You've done research on frogs and zebrafish, on microscopic creatures called tardigrades or water bears, as they're affectionately known. Plus, you've grown algae on wastewater for biofuel. You trained as a cell biologist, and you're now participating in biological experiments on the International Space Station. That is so cool. And you have your hands in developmental biology, molecular biology, and space biology. This is a lot of passion for biology. Who are you? So let's start with developmental biology. What is it, and what do you do with this knowledge? As she said, I was trained in cell biology, uh, cell and developmental biology. And so developmental biology is really the study of how you go from being a single cell into a multicellular organism. And those, um, the, the rules that govern that, the gene expression program that governs that is in many organisms very similar. So um, in all vertebrates, it's very similar. So the organisms that I've worked with for developmental biology in particular are frogs. Uh, frogs are really cool because they're, all of their development is external. So the eggs are laid and they're fertilized and so, and they're vertebrates. You can look at all stages of vertebrate development in an organism, which you can raise in the lab and you can, you can look at a thousand eggs at the same time developing. And so you really can follow these patterns and frog eggs are also um, very easy to micro inject. And so you can do ultra gene expression in them. And so then you can understand more about the rules that are governing how tissues are, are developed and how, how whole organs are developed. And one of the things that they, they learned very early on with frogs was that you could actually, with frog embryos, is that you could actually cut out little pieces and, and stick them onto another embryo. And that um, really taught about cell fates and tissue fates. So they would do these time experiments where they would take uh, embryos at different stages and take tissues from older embryo and put them on a younger one and say, okay, well, is this put an eye on the stomach area of a, of a, of a frog? Does it still develop into an eye? So what are the things that, when does the tissue become determined in its development. And so that was, you know, my my entree into frog development was just learning about all of these great things. Didn't frogs also go into space? Oh, yes. So that is one of the reasons I think that I was hired was because I knew a lot about frogs. And right before I was hired, there was a there was this great experiment of flying frogs in space. And so they only flew the females because you can take the sperm, uh, you can take the testes out of a male frog and you can then fertilize the eggs in space. And so it, the question that they were answering is whether gravity is required for the vertebrate axis development. And previous experiments where they had looked at centrifugation, so hypergravity, had shown that you could change where the axis was by putting the eggs in a particular orientation and then spinning them and they would develop a second axis. So they hypothesized that that actually gravity was really important for axis development, but you couldn't do that on Earth. The only place you could do that experiment is in space. So that's, you know, that's a really cool experiment that you can't do any other place is to determine whether gravity is required for axis development. So can you explain what axis development is? 
you start out as an egg, which is basically round and doesn't have any axis. It just, it's, it's a blob, you know, with a frog egg, it's just uniform. It's actually, it has kind of an, what they call an animal and, and vegetal. And the axis is actually, so your body axis, you have a anterior posterior one, which is like from the top of your head down to your toes. That's the first axis and that's where your spine develops, etc. So what about molecular biology? This sounds a bit more daunting. Well, certainly, actually, in some ways, it's simpler than developmental biology because it's you're going down to the molecular level and you're actually looking at the components of the cell at the molecular level. Um, most people, when they when you say molecular biology, they think about genes and chromosomes and actually uh, and gene expression. Um, so that's that's how most people think about molecular biology. And you can also do gene jockeying. You can actually take genes and clone them. And so all of that is part of molecular biology. So cutting and pasting genes to create new new constructs that you can put into cells and, and look at gene expression and how that affects developmental biology. So as a molecular biologist, we use a lot of molecular tools to to work in developmental biology or to work in neurobiology, to work in a lot of other fields, you need molecular biology tools. Okay, good explanation, thanks. And finally, space biology. This is really out there and it sounds really exciting. You study the biology in space? Understanding how biology on Earth evolved, um, you know, we can, we can look at biology on Earth, but how um, biology responds to the space environment is, is a very interesting question. Um, and that's, an, a, that's a question that's very important for if, if we want to have human habitation in space or on other planets, understanding the biology of the effects of the space environment on organisms is really important. And there's multiple parts of space biology. So the two biggest factors in the space environment which affect, there's a, there's a number of different ones that affect organisms, but two of the major ones are microgravity, the absence of gravity, um, and the physics of that whole environment, and then radiation. So the effects of radiation on, on organisms. And, and as a space biologist, um, we're mostly looking at model organisms. So we're looking at um, invertebrates or mice or plants and not necessarily at humans, except we look at cells, cultured cells. So this is a good introduction then to your involvement on NASA's Gene Lab team. Gene Lab is collecting data from model organisms. Tell me more about this. Um, there's been a lot of experiments in space, and and the model uh, originally, for many many years, was basically somebody would propose an experiment, then NASA would help them build the hardware for that experiment and fly it into space. A number of years ago, the National Academies actually put out a recommendation. It's called the the Decadal Survey. Um, and that guides a lot of the space biology program experiments. And one of the recommendations that they made was that um, we needed to actually gather, get a better bag for our buck. So for each experiment that went up there, we could do a lot more with the data if we actually did omics analysis. So omics analysis is looking at gene expression. So there's transcriptomics, which is looking at gene expression. There's proteomics, which is looking at the proteins in any tissue or cells. Metagenomics, which is looking at all of the organisms. So if you have a group of bacteria, metagenomics is looking at, well, who's in that population? So all of that data is housed in NASA's gene lab database. And so it's all the different experiments that have happened in space where they did omics analysis. 
Um, GeneLab also has a sample processing lab. So if somebody flew an experiment and there were extra tissues, those are stored at NASA and GeneLab has access to those tissues and then can process them for omics analysis. So they can uh, look at transcriptomics. They can do G uh, sequencing of all the RNA in that tissue and then understand the, the gene expression that happened between spaceflight and ground samples. So the omics data that's in Gene Lab's data repository, is it free? Can anybody download it? Are there restrictions? It's all free. It's, it's publicly available. Um, not only is it publicly available, we actually have analysis working groups that help us analyze the data in Gene Lab. Anybody can join. They, we ask that they provide a CV to show that they're, that they're bona fide bioinformaticians or that they have that experience and can help us in understanding the data that's in that database. So yes, anybody can do it. We even have courses on that, on analyzing gene lab data. So yes, it's a, it's publicly available. It's very well curated. We have a whole team of curators who go in there um, and curate the data. And then we also have data processing. So we have this, we have a data processing pipeline and those pipelines were agreed upon by our analysis working groups so that much of the data that's in there is processed using a standard pipeline and then visualized. So we have a visualization portal where you can see the changes in gene expression in any given experiment. Um, and so those are some really wonderful, powerful developments that have happened over the last several years that make that data that much more accessible to the general public. Rather than just looking at, you know, AT, GC sequences that people don't really understand, you can really visually then compare the samples between flight and ground and say, oh, this gene is upregulated, that gene is downregulated, et cetera, and then try to understand the biological consequences of that change in gene expression. So for members of our audience who might be interested in omics data and downloading it to do research, what is the Gene Lab website? It's genelab.nasa.gov. Go there. You were recently awarded the NASA Ames Research Innovation Award for Rad Bread, Radiation Biology Research at an Elevated Altitude Through Dosimetry. Please explain. So every year, uh, NASA Ames puts out these incentive awards. Um, and so you can submit proposals for innovative projects and they're small amounts of money. I super I direct several education programs and this project fell out of one of those programs, the Space Life Sciences Training Program. So in that program, we have 10 students per year. They're paired with individual mentors and they also do a group project. During the course of the summer last year, when we were doing everything virtual, we still had that program running. And I presented a number of different opportunities to the students in, the, in that program. This experiment fell out of that. Opportunity that they proposed to was an opportunity to fly what's called a piggyback payload on experimental vehicle which is a high altitude solar vehicle that goes up to say 70,000 feet during the day and then drops down 50,000 feet at night and basically circles around the, the New Mexico desert at high altitude for a week. So it's an unmanned, very high altitude vehicle. So it was a, it's an experimental vehicle. The vehicle is actually under development under a, an SBIR grant, a small business grant. 
and they have a payload, a primary payload on there, which is going to be a forestry payload, forestry surveillance that, that they're testing. And then we get to fly a very tiny little experiment on the same vehicle. And so the students are now, these are, these are college students, so they've been in school all year round and they've never met each other. And now they're developing this little payload that's going to go on there. Um, the payload consists of a radiation dosimeter from the DLR, from the, the German Space Agency, a number of yeast strains um, that uh, could be a biological monitor for radiation doses. So the radiation dose dosimeter will actually look at that high altitude environment and give us a readout on the radiation exposure, and then the yeast will give us a biological read out on the effects of that radiation exposure. The The one interesting thing about that whole flight is that there are a lot of the characteristics of that high altitude environment which are um, very similar to the surface of Mars. So we are in fact, you know, one of the main objectives is to characterize that environment as a Mars surface analog. How exciting for these students as well. Oh, it is. It's great. They're They're thrilled. So you and I share a common passion, education and public outreach. So in addition to being a research, you are also the director of education and outreach for the space biology program at Ames Research Center. As part of that, you do manage the space life science training program that you just described, but you also manage the, the Gene Lab for High School program. Can you tell me just a little bit about that one? This is a great program. It's been running at NASA Ames for four years, um, led by, it was developed by uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blaver, who's at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York, but she was the postdoc at NASA Ames when she developed the program. And it ran in person for the last several years, except for last year, because of the pandemic. Um, at the same time, I was uh, given this director position to run both of these programs, and simultaneously we had the pandemic, so I had to pivot to in-person programs to virtual. So that was a big, a big, very interesting challenge and, and it worked very well. So we're running both programs again this year virtually. We still aren't able to have students at Ames yet. We are doing both programs virtually. So the Gene Lab High School program actually uses the Gene Lab database and teaches high school students to analyze transcriptomic data in the Gene Lab database. Several years previously, they did microarray data, which is one type of transcriptomic analysis. And uh, last year, we pivoted to training them how to do RNA-seq analysis, which is next generation sequencing. They did very, very well. So we're, we're doing that again. We also train teachers in the program. So we have funding to, to bring teachers in as well. Uh, we had Four, four teachers last year. This year we'll have three teachers that are funded. The, the program is fully funded. The students don't have to pay to attend. It's very competitive. We put out application. We put out the, the call for applications in the winter and then, you know, get hundreds and hundreds of applicants that we have to screen and, and select only a few to come in actually and do the training. So we have slots for 15 high school students and three high school teachers this year. We're hoping, well, there's a lot of uh, interest in the program, so we're hoping that we can expand it uh, more broadly and develop a lot of online content so that we can have on-demand training. So the, um, the education for your science journey took you from the Universities of California at Santa Cruz and San Francisco to Brown University in Rhode Island and the European Molecular Biology Lab in Heidelberg, Germany. 
What do you tell students who want to pursue careers in science and maybe want to work at NASA? Is our internships the way to go? Well, certainly internships can tell you a lot about whether you're interested in a, in a subject or not. Um, but there's also, you know, with any internship, there's always a play between whoever is the mentor and, you know, your your experience and whether, you, but certainly internships in laboratory can tell you whether you actually enjoy doing laboratory work and what types of laboratory work you might do, you might enjoy. So your experience in one lab may not be very good, but you might want to go try another one and, and see if that area is more interesting to you or a different mentor is better. So certainly the more experience and the more varied experiences, the better, but lots of times it's just happenstance where you end up. So I graduated from UC Santa Cruz. I studied mostly plant biology when I was there. I moved to Rhode Island with my then boyfriend who later became my became my husband. And um, he was in graduate school there and I got a, a job in a virology lab and I loved it. I actually really loved working in virology. And then I wanted to go to graduate school because I saw that here were all these, these people in the lab that were graduate students and they were getting paid. I thought, well, I can do that. I'm gonna go to grad school and get paid <laughs> and get a degree at the same time. And so that's how I ended up at UCSF. Graduate school was a, was a great thing, but doing my postdoc at, at in Europe was even better. So I really loved the time that I was a postdoc at the European Molecular Biology Lab. So I'm still very much involved with them as an alumnus. And that's a very, you know, rich part of my scientific life on an ongoing basis, which is great. So, you know, one of the wonderful things about being a scientist is that you can really have an inter international community. For me, that's the most exciting thing about being a scientist is having friends and colleagues around the world that I interact with and that I remain in contact with. And when anywhere in the world that I want to go, I know I probably know somebody there or I can go and talk to people about science. You know, I could go and, you know, one of the things that I think about as I as I get older is, boy, it would be fun to go and do little scientific stints in different places. And I've looked into Fulbright fellowships, just being able to go and say, hey, I can, you know, I've got two hands and a brain put me to work in your lab for a while. I've got, you know, I have my retirement income, whatever. So these are the things that I think about in my aging years, how I, how I might like to spend my time and still get my scientific fix, which I love. I think another way that you're getting your scientific fixes, I know that you're among your favorite creatures are the tardigrades or the water bears. And recently um, at Ames Research Center, some new hardware for culturing water bears in space NASA's bioculture system was developed. What will you do as part of this team? And like, what, what will the bioculture system do? I mean, we know that astronauts are exposed to extreme environments of radiation and microgravity. Will this, will tardigrade research play a part in this? Well, lots of great questions there. And there's a, there's a lot to unpack. So there's the hardware, there's the tardigrades, there's astronauts, our tard, you know, our tardigrades are little micro astronauts. <laughs> so I'm not actually directly involved in that project, although I have, I know the principal investigator on that is Thomas Boothby, who's uh, at the University of Wyoming, and he's one of my collaborators on the, several projects. The hardware is actually developed for a number of different purposes. So you can grow there these hollow fiber little tubes 
And basically, you can grow cells in there. You can grow invertebrates. So tardigrades are little invertebrate organisms. During the development of this spaceflight experiment, they had to see whether, whether they could actually use that hardware to grow tardigrades. They already knew that they could grow heart cells, heart cardiac myocytes were grown in there and flown in space. And they were shown, you know, in the original test of that hardware, they were shown that you could uh, culture these cardiac myocytes in that hardware and they would form myotubes and start beating, the little myotubes would start beating. So these cardiac myocytes, you, you culture them as individual cells and then under certain culture conditions, they will fuse and form these myotubes, which are multicellular. And then they develop the myofibrils, which are the structures within the cell made of actin and myosin. And those are the, the contractile fibers that make your heart beat or make your muscles work. So that was that was one of the original tests um, of that hardware that was done by uh, Eduardo Almeida was the PI on that. The tardigrades, so why tardigrades? So um, one of the things that NASA is interested in is what are the effects on, on subsequent generations of spaceflight exposure? And so they put out calls for multi-generational experiments and we've, space biology has flown a lot of Drosophila experiments where you can actually separate the generations and look at uh, the progeny that were born in space and look at the effects on those. And so tardigrades is, is another one from that same call. The tardigrade that they're flying, are all, they're basically all females. They, they, they're parthenogenetic, which means that they, they don't need sexual reproduction. They will just produce offspring. So they'll lay eggs. The embryos will develop very normally. And so you end up with, you can end up with large cultures. I have some growing in my house right now, little tardigrades, because <laughs> I haven't been able to go into the lab. So I just brought my tardigrades home and they, they grow on my, you know, grow in my little, in my bedroom. <laughs> Science at home. <laughs> Science at home, yeah. They are very easy to culture. They This particular species eats algae, and so you can just put algae cultures in there, and, they, uh, and, and you can also freeze them. So they'll be sent up frozen, and then, I believe, and then injected into the hardware on the International Space Station. And then they'll be able to look at gene expression in space and determine how gene expression has changed in the tardigrades in space. Give me um, one example of the human benefit. Like, how is this research going to benefit me? Well, certainly already out of the, the research from this project, they have determined, they've, they've actually look, looked at tardigrade gene expression, and they're actually a whole class of genes that are involved in tolerance to stresses. Tardigrades are, are most famous for the fact that you can, when they're in there, they can go into these states, metabolic stasis where basically they shut down all their metabolism, they get rid of all of most of their the water in their bodies, and they turn into this little form that's called a ton. Um, and that ton is, is a quiescent state. You can basically keep them in that state for years and years and years and years, and then add water and bring them back. So there's a number of different um, environmental stresses that, that different tardigrades are exposed to. So there's thousands of different tardigrade species and they grow in environments all over the planet. I mean, they basically every every place on, on earth you could go and find tardigrades. Some of them are exposed to 
the desiccation tolerance and some are some of them are exposed to very low temperatures and higher salt etc there's you know you see you find them in in the ocean you find them in in freshwater etc so the different species have all adapted to these different environments and so understanding the basis of this stress tolerance is really is actually really important for understanding how our own metabolism works how we could protect ourselves or how we could pr protect biologics that we need to take with us on any space exploration. So certainly one of the, one of the avenues is looking at protection of biologics. So protection, even protection of vaccines, et cetera, things like that. The proteins that are in organisms that respond to stress tolerance, you can clone those and then you can actually use them to help preserve other biological materials. So in your early life, Sigrid, did you start thinking about science? Did you have a science journey when you were a kid, when you were a teenager? Well, my mother, who rest in peace, my, my mother loved to tell the story about how I took my brother's tv apart at age two with a phillips head screwdriver <laughs> luckily i wasn't you know i wasn't electrocuted and the tv never really functioned after that so that was my early introduction i always loved cre creatures you know i always had we always had pets etc i was off again on again student so i i spent a lot of time goofing off <laughs> I, I always thought I was naughty, but I loved, I always loved to hike. I love nature. I always had things like tadpoles at my house, but I was not, you know, I was, I was just a normal kid. My dad was a doctor and my dad always wanted me to be a doctor. And when I dropped out of chemistry in high school, he was very upset. And even once I got my PhD uh, from UCSF, his only comment was, well, couldn't you just go do a couple more years and get your MD. So he really wanted me to be a physician. I had several brothers that were physicians, but he really want, he in particular wanted me to be a physician. And you come from a very large family, correct? I do. I come from a family of 14 children. There are still 12 of us still alive uh, and we all get along. So uh, fill in this blank. I was inspired by? Outside, I'm just inspired by nature in general. I am totally inspired by nature. Dave, uh, did you have any favorite subjects when you were middle school or high school? Obviously, chemistry was not one of them. Did you have any? <laughs> I loved French. So I started French in junior high school um, and then took it into high school. And I absolutely loved French. I didn't have any exposure to foreign languages in my home or anything, but I really decided that that was really cool, that you could speak a foreign language. And so I studied really, really hard. I studied hard enough that when I got to UC Santa Cruz, I basically tested out out of all of their advanced French classes, and I was able to get a job as a French translator for the University of California Extension Program and worked with midwives from West Africa in family planning as a university student, helped myself, put myself through college working as a French translator. You are amazing. In your career so far, what job has inspired you the most, made you think differently about your life or the world around you? I will have to say my job at Brown University as a technician in the virology lab of Dr. Peter Shank. That lab worked on chicken retroviruses. Um, what was very interesting was that was in the, in the 1980s when the AIDS just started in San Francisco. And so working on a retrovirus at that time was really amazing because they decided they figured out that the AIDS virus was a retrovirus as well. So I really felt like 
I had all these tools to kind of learn about that pandemic, which is still ongoing. And so that definitely really changed my whole idea, made me decide that I really wanted to work in laboratory science. It was kind of like cooking. I've always cooked my whole life and working in the lab is a lot like cooking. You get to play around with ingredients and see what happens. Can you explain what a retrovirus is? So a retrovirus is a virus that when it enters the cell, it actually makes a copy of itself which inserts into the DNA of the host. Where the genome of the virus gets gets reverse transcribed into a copy that gets inserted into the genome of the host. They actually get carried. You can never get rid of them necessarily. You carry them the rest of your life because they're part of your genome. They may not be in all of your cells, but they can it depends on which cells they infect. They can keep the virus from replicating, basically, so that they can keep the cells that they would infect from carrying that infection as, as heavily. So, and keep the cells, keep the people from spreading the virus through yeah. the virus being expressed in the cells and replicated and then released into blood, for instance. I have one more question for you about your job, and then I have a couple questions for you about your personal life. So your last job question, has there been an aha moment in your job, something unexpected that you learned or accomplished? They happen all the time, those aha moments. That's great. <laughs> there are aha moments on, on a daily basis, but that's not that's not true. But that's that's what we live for. We live for those aha moments. So yeah, I've had, I've had, luckily I've had so many aha moments I can't even count. So because this is a podcast and there are no visuals of you to share with the audience about yourself, I'm going to make some assumptions about you and I want you to agree or disagree with them. I wear a white lab coat because all scientists wear white lab coats. Whenever I can get in the lab and wear a white lab coat, I will. I sit behind a computer all day. Yeah, right now I sit behind a computer all day. That's sad. I can't wait to get back in the lab. I have no hobbies or outside interests. Science research is my life. Happily, that's not true. I I have too many. Well, it's because you're a scientist. You're so curious about so many different things. Well, and then once I figure it out, it's like, okay, well, I'm done. So, But I mean, that's a big problem in science because one of the biggest things in science that you have to do is to communicate your results and you have to communicate them, you know, in the proper way. You have to generate data, which is believable, well characterized. You have to be able to repeat it. Making sure that um, you can get your findings published is actually a really important part of science. I'm so critical of my own work that I'm pretty bad at getting my own work published, but I'm very happy. I'm much better at helping other people with their own work. So um, the job that I have at NASA is actually great for that because I can, I can be a part of a lot of projects and help them a, a gear that helps projects move along. I don't care about the glory as much. I care about seeing that things get, get done properly. I believe we're alone in the universe. Well, you may be, but... <laughs> What do you believe? Do you believe we're alone in the universe? No, I think there's there's probably, you know, that the chances that life could evolve, you know, multiple times or get transported from one place to another. There's a high probability of that, certainly. So there's a there's a I think there's more and more evidence for that possibility. There's definitely some possibility that there was life on Mars. And what you know, do we know what life? How do the, the question is how do you de- define life? Lots of people would not characterize the SARS-CoV-2 virus as a as life, right? It's not living. 
It contains materials of life, definitely. In my family, I'm best known for red pepper jelly. I, I grow my own peppers. I make my own red pepper jelly. So I make a lot of jellies. Everybody gets them for Christmas. In my work, I'm best known for it sounds like helping people. Yeah, and asking difficult questions or just asking questions. I ask a lot of questions. If we if there's a seminar, I always ask a question. And I know a lot about a lot of different subjects. So I can, I, and I'm interested in lots of different subjects. So there's always something that I want to ask. Um, and I always figure that I've, I've learned very young that there are no stupid questions. You can have a lot of stupid answers. You can have people that act like your question is stupid, but that's their problem, not yours. Okay, so I have one final question for you. I read that in the early years of your career, you were skeptical about spaceflight research. Why was that, and what made you a believer? Well, let's see. I work for NASA. <laughs> so what was what was what made me skeptical? So I mean, I when I grew up, you know, I grew up when you know the man landed on the moon, and I grew up in a very large family. My older brothers were at UC Berkeley, and they were they protested the Vietnam War. I grew up knowing that there were problems in the world, and I grew up feeling like, well, we need to solve the problems on Earth. And I that was kind of my basic premise, and it's still my basic premise. It really, is a huge part of my life is that. We really, we have some big problems on earth and we really need to solve those. And so I really did not have a lot of that. It was really expensive to do experiments in space. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that has changed is is just the fact that, that there are experimental questions that you can answer in space. And because, you know, the International Space Station has really become a very important part of our international environment. Um, it has created alliances. When you go up, astronauts that go up to the International Space Station, they work together. Countries that have differences can actually live together on the International Space Station. So I think it's a really important international laboratory. I mean, that certainly was, you know, the case where I worked in Germany at the European Molecular Biology Labs, that that was an international laboratory. And so that whole, my whole view is that it's really important to have international laboratories um, that those are those bridge cultures. So the other thing that has changed is that it's gotten a lot cheaper to fly experiments in space, and they've become re repeatable. One of the important things in doing any kind of experiment is the ability to repeat that experiment and get the same result. And the more that you can repeat it and get the same result, and where different people can actually take the same methods and repeat the experiment and get a similar result, that's really critical in understanding biological phenomenon. And so one of the things that's happened is that it is possible to fly this same experiment more than once and actually say, okay, what is what has changed or fly very similar experiments. You know, I, I've actually worked for NASA for more than 20 years. I mean, that's been my bread and butter. It's helped me as a single parent support my two children then that that job was was really critical. I have worked very hard at NASA to make sure that when I have a role on a project that I'm very critical of the science, that I use my analytical skills to make sure that the experiment is solid and that if it's going to go fly in on the International Space Station, that the science is at least while and is going to work. Um, so that the experiment is going to work and it's not going to be a waste of money. We still always need critical minds. Databases like the GeneLab database where science that happens in the International Space Station is actually 
made publicly available so anybody can analyze it and critique it and come up with solutions. Um, that's actually also very, very important moving forward. Thank you, Sigrid. This has been a fascinating hour conversation with you. I'm so grateful to you for, for sharing your science journey and for sharing your knowledge. Thank you, Sandy. It's always fun to talk to you.